0: Well, if you love the Lord, say amen. Amen. Well, that was not very good. If you love God, say amen. Amen. If you love the Lord, say a good hearty amen. Amen. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy. As God was speaking to his children, he said that it was his goal that they would love the Lord their God with all of their heart. I'm so thankful for uh, Mike's children, my kids that just sang these young people, and uh, so thankful for the many, many years that they were able to travel together. They kind of grew up almost being brothers and sisters, and they started singing together when they were just little, little tykes, and uh, we have told them over and over, I've told my children, I know Mike has as well, that this is the most important thing in life. The most important thing is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, and I hope that even these days that we're spending together, these times in the Word of God would just increase your love. You know, if you live your entire life and you don't love God and you don't love others, it's really wasting your life. So I want to encourage you to really take note to the truth of these songs that we've sung tonight and allow God to increase your love even in this service. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Micah. Micah chapter 6 is where we're turning tonight. The Old Testament uh, passage of Scripture. This is what we call one of the minor prophets. The book of Micah and Micah is called a minor prophet, not because he is a short guy, okay? Maybe you think that the major prophets were really big guys, and the minor prophets were really little guys. No, that's not what it means, okay? Uh, we, we definitely don't call Micah a minor prophet because what he said was insignificant. And actually, if you've ever read through the Old Testament, if you've ever read through these books that are called the minor prophets, you would agree with me that these guys had a passion for God, and they preached some of the most powerful messages that you could ever imagine. And so we know that it's not a minor prophet because it's insignificant. Why, why do we call this a minor prophet? It's probably not necessarily an appropriate word to use. We just simply call it a minor prophet because it is short in length. And some of you are thinking, man, I wish all the pastors that I've heard were minor prophets, right? <laughs> but uh, don't worry, tonight I'll be a major prophet, Just as that's okay with you. But uh, we're going to look at Micah chapter 6. And it's interesting, in Micah chapter 6, the prophet who is prophesying during the reign of Ahaz, he is prophesying to the people of God. He is preaching to them under inspiration. And we have it recorded for us. And it's significant to note that in this passage of Scripture, there are actually three speakers involved. And actually, it's interesting that he draws us into what we might call a courtroom setting. In a courtroom, typically you would have the judge. Also, you would have the prosecuting attorney. And you would have the defense. And that is exactly what we see in these verses. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8, getting to the main text that we'll look at, which is verse 8. And what, is, uh, what we need to notice tonight is the significant issue, the significant problem that these people had. It is laid out by the prophet starting in verse 1. Micah chapter 6, verse 1. This is the prophet acting as the prosecuting attorney coming before God, who is the judge, and saying, this is what we need to declare before the judge. This is the problem. This is the case that he had against God's people. Verse 1. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills... Hear thy voice. This is a picturesque way of saying, you better listen up to what I'm about ready to say. Hear, O mountains, verse 2 says, The Lord's controversy and ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. Two times we see this word, the word controversy. It's a Hebrew word that was used to describe an actual case, an indictment against the people. Can I ask you a question tonight? Would it be a problem to you if if you knew that God had a problem with you? Would it be a problem to you if you knew that God had a problem with you? I sure hope down in your heart you're thinking, absolutely, that would really bother me. Well, here we have a text where it is actually declaring that God has a problem, a case, against his people. And so the prophet is declaring the problem. He's declaring the case in the courtroom. And now God, the judge, speaks, starting in verse 3. By the way, this is is the way we ought to read Scripture. We ought to really dig down deep and see the true meaning of the text. Verse 3, O my people, God, the judge is speaking, O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. So obviously, we see that the people had grown weary in doing right things. Have you ever gotten to that point? You ever feel like it's really not worth it? I'm tired of just doing all this stuff. I'm tired of serving God. I'm tired of going through these, uh, th- these things that I'm asked to do. I'm just weary. L- listen, the Bible says, Grow not weary in well doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. These people had grown weary. And I believe it's because their focus was on religious ritual and not on a proper relationship with their God. Let me say that again. Their focus, on, their focus was on religious ritual and not on the relationship they should have been cultivating with God. Verse 4, the God, the judge, continues to speak and he says this. He reminds them of the past. He reminds them of his good hand on their lives. Verse 4, For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, redeemed thee out of the house of servants. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. This is an amazing text that reminds us whenever we get tired of serving God, Whenever we think that it's not worth it, you know what we need to do? We need to remember what God has done in the past. Has God protected you? Yes, he has. Has God directed you? Yes, he has. Has God provided leadership for you by by means of even certain people that are directing your life? Absolutely. And so he reminds them of several of these things, how he brought them out of Egypt. Remember the story how they came out of Egypt across the Red Sea? Incredible miracles that God did to deliver them out of the hands of Pharaoh He reminds them of Moses and Aaron and Miriam. These were the leaders that God graciously provided in his sovereignty to guide them into the promised land. He reminds them of the two cities on either side of the Jordan River. Those were the cities mentioned, the city of Shittim and the city of Gilgal, on both sides of the Jordan River. And we know what God did. God brought his people into the promised land just like he promised. And God will always come through on his promises. And whenever you are doubting that, you ought to remember how he has answered your prayers in the past. You ought to remember what he has done for you in leading and guiding your life. And so God lays out this, this case. He lays out these things that he's done in the past. And so we've seen the prophet who is acting as the prosecuting attorney laying out the case. We have heard from the judge who is God himself and now the defense The people are their own defense. And notice how they defend themselves starting in verse 6. This is their defense. A series of questions. Ridiculous questions that they should already know the answers to. And this is the way we get sometimes. When we get frustrated in our faith, when we get frustrated in doing right things, and we get weary in those things, we start laying out questions that are absolutely ridiculous that we ought to know the answer to. Here are the questions that they said. Verse 6, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? In other words, more sacrifices. More uh, animal sacrifices. More offerings to the Lord. Is that what God is looking for? No. Verse 7, they ask some more questions. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, Or with ten thousands of rivers of oil shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? They get so ridiculous in their questioning that they actually raise the issue of child sacrifice. How ridiculous is this? The people of God clearly knew that they should not sacrifice like the pagans do. And it's interesting that actually during this time period... One of the kings of Israel had actually involved himself in child sacrifice. And yet they knew the answer to these questions. They knew what God was really looking for because God is not looking for religion and ritual. God is looking for a relationship. That's what God wants. God is not looking for religion and ritual. God is looking for a relationship. And so we come to verse 8. And this is really the text that we're going to be looking at tonight. And we see this truth. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. So verse 8 reveals to us the key ingredients to cultivating a right relationship with God. I'm concerned that in the church today, that it's not just the Catholics and not just other Protestant churches, but even in our independent Baptist churches, we are consumed with religious duty, religious uh, ritual, and we're really not cultivating a relationship with God. Young person, that's a very dangerous way to live, to just go through the motions, to just go through the rituals, to just do the religion. That's not what God wants. What does God require? It says in this verse, Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. You know what? This is a very simple message, and it really can summarize all of our Christian experience. This is what God wants from you. Let's stop complicating the Christian life. The Christian life is really simple. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. And young person tonight, if you are not obeying those requirements, you cannot possibly say you are in a right relationship with God. You may be judicially declared righteous through salvation, but progressively being sanctified and out of fellowship with God you might be tonight. And so I'm asking you, are you obedient to these requirements? It's interesting that we'll go to school and we'll fulfill all the list of requirements. We'll, we'll play on a team and we'll do everything the coach requires us to do. We'll live in a country that has all kinds of laws and all kinds of regulations. Sometimes we think way too many, right? I know that. And we'll obey those laws and regulations. If we'll obey our teachers and we'll obey our government and we'll obey our coaches, can I ask you, why will you not obey God's requirements? They're simply stated But very difficult to live. But I'm going to tell you right now, this is what God's looking for. God is looking for a right relationship with you, which is built on obedience. Obedience to these three requirements. Let's talk about them. First of all, he tells us that we, as God's people, need to be doing justice. Doing justly. What does the Lord require of thee? But to do justly. This is a very significant word, the word justice. It actually was the word that was used to describe the rule of law. It was the ethical, moral standard. And so when he's telling us to do justice, he's basically telling us establish a normal pattern of doing what is right. This is what God requires of us, to do what is right. Or maybe I could say it this way, the first requirement of God is this, be holy. Be holy. Holy. Listen, you cannot read through the Old Testament or the New Testament without acknowledging that one of the requirements of God is that we would be holy as He is holy. 1 Peter chapter 1 actually quotes from the book of Leviticus, where the Bible tells us, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And the Scripture reminds us that this holiness is not an option. This holiness, this righteousness, this cultivation of right behavior is uh, God's command for our life. Can I ask you tonight, are you aggressively, fervently pursuing a life of righteousness and holiness? Now let's talk about this for a moment, because as soon as I talk about holiness, everybody starts to think that holiness is all about the way I behave. Does holiness include that? Absolutely. But be careful. Holiness is not just behaving right. How many of you have ever met somebody that behaved right, but you knew they weren't right? You see, you can do right, but not be right. Am I right? You can do right, but not be right. But you cannot possibly be right without doing right. So I want to ask you this question. Which is more important, the heart, the belief on the inside, or the behavior on the outside? Which is more important? That's kind kind of a risky question to answer, isn't it? They're both important, but I do believe that we should be careful not to get the cart before the horse. You know what I'm talking about? Now, if I just wear these clothes and not listen to rock music and not watch R-rated movies and not let any curse word out of my mouth and we could go on and on about certain behavioral standards that we're, we're asked to obey as Christians and that we're taught in our churches, as long as I do all of these external things that everybody expects me to do, I must be holy. You know what? We've all been around people who did all those things, but there obviously was something not right. Because for years, maybe they were covering up what was actually going on in their heart, what actually was going on in their mind, what actually was, being, was brewing inside of them, which will eventually live out. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so I want to encourage you to think about it this way. Holiness is primarily an internal quality that will manifest itself externally. So we need to be starting with this idea of holiness in our thinking. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, Wherefore gird up the loins of your mind, Be sober and hope to the end, for the grace is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And I just want to say tonight, we live in a very unholy world, but there is no excuse for us as believers. To follow all the ways of the world, not only in our behavior, but in our thinking and in our heart, For out of our heart are all the issues of life. And and maybe in this room tonight, we have some young people, and you are experts. You are experts at making sure you're obeying the rules. But you know, down deep in your heart, you really are not doing justly. You are not making right decisions in your life, starting on the inside. Maybe you have your parents totally fooled. Maybe you have your youth pastor totally fooled. You can fool your parents, you can fool your youth pastor, but you cannot fool God. Be sure your sin will find you out. And the stories could be told, and the testimonies could be told of young people who people thought were such spiritually minded young people. And all of a sudden, things come out that have been going on for years in their life. The stories could be told all night long like that of people who sat in church and appeared to be holy, but there was really no internal justice, internal righteousness going on on the inside. Holiness is God's requirement. Can I encourage you tonight, if you are not aggressively and fervently pursuing a life of righteousness, then it's time for you to start. It's time for you to start. Listen, you don't have to look very hard and long in this world to find a whole lot of sin, a whole lot of sensuality, a whole lot of people trying to influence you to do the wrong things. And I'm just telling you, if you're going to be a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're going to be in right standing with Him, in a right relationship with Him, you must be eagerly and aggressively pursuing this life of righteousness. Do justly. Be holy. And if there's something that needs to be confessed tonight, whether it's internal or external, whether it's in your belief or in your behavior, whatever it might be, if there is something that needs to be confessed tonight, aren't you thankful the Bible says if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us. Aren't you thankful for that? If we cover our sins, we will not prosper. But if we confess them and forsake them, we will have mercy. But it's very dangerous to sit in a service like this and know that you have been covering up sin in your life. You've been covering up what, what people do not know is really true about you. It is very dangerous to continue to cover it up and act like everything is fine when you know you ought to deal with sin. He that being often reproved and hardens his neck shall be suddenly cut off and that without remedy. Can I warn you tonight, do not leave out of this service without confessing what you know to be wrong, what you know to be sinful, those things that you've been involved in, maybe even in the last several days during Christmas break, maybe away from your parents with some of your friends, there's some things that you've been doing or thinking about or involved in that you ought to get right, you ought to get back in right relationship with God. Because it's not enough to just be a religious person. You need to have a right relationship. It's not about religion and ritual. It's about a relationship. That was the people of God's problem here in this text, and that's our problem sometimes as well. We forget what God requires. What does God require? First of all, do justice. Then he says this, love mercy. Say it with me, love mercy. Mercy. It's interesting, he uses two words that we sometimes would call synonyms, love and mercy. And he's actually telling us that we are to enjoy being merciful to other people. Now, this is, this is a very important word in the Old Testament, the word mercy. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which runs throughout the Old Testament, which is God's covenant, promise-keeping love. For his people. I am so glad to tell you tonight that God's love for you will never change. It will never change. Because God never changes. He is a steadfast, loving God. He's faithful to you. And that is the loving kindness, the mercy, the tender mercy, the love that he is expressing here in this text. This word mercy is a very important word. This word mercy has three different ideas. First of all, mercy means... Number one, mercy means somebody has a need. Somebody has a need. Can I ask you, when you were born, do you think you had a pretty serious need? Yes, because the Bible says in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. From the very moment I was born, I have a propensity to rebel against God. I go my own way. I'm like a sheep going astray. I have a serious need when I'm born. I have a need, which means God can be merciful. Do you realize there's no way to show mercy if there's no needs? Mercy implies somebody has a need. Secondly, mercy means this. Not only does does somebody have a need, but number two, somebody has the ability to meet the need. You cannot have mercy unless somebody actually has the ability to meet the need. And and this is where we can talk about the greatest story ever told, the gospel. God is the only one that can meet our need of forgiveness, right? And so the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus came, he took upon himself the form of a servant, he was made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so what we know is that only God can save us. So God is merciful because he had the ability to meet the need. Mercy means somebody has a need. Number two, somebody has the ability to meet the need. Number three, mercy means this. Someone sacrifices and meets the need. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Though he was rich, he became poor. That we, through his poverty might be made rich what great mercy this is why the bible says greater love hath no man than this that a man would lay down his life for his friends you know what we are privileged as christians to see the greatest demonstration of mercy in our own salvation his unspeakable gift of salvation is the greatest testimony of this mercy mercy means somebody has a need mercy means somebody has the ability to meet the need mercy means someone sacrifices to meet the need So can I ask you, why is it that sometimes the people who have experienced the greatest mercy of God to save their soul are the most unmerciful to other people? You see, this is the foundation for a life of mercy and service to other people. It is the fact that he has served us. And yet, sad to say, Christians often are the most easily offended people. Christians often are the ones that hold grudges. Christians often are the ones who get bitter and are unforgiving, and they never want to show kindness and mercy to other people. Listen, if we have experienced God's mercy, we should be distributing that mercy to other people. But here's the problem. Are you ready for this? This is the problem we all have. You know who we love? You know who we love showing mercy to? Point to yourself, right? Right? We love ourselves. We we came into this world with this spirit of my own way. People ought to serve me. And sad to say, some people go to church and this is their spirit. Well, that church is doing nothing for me. That church is not meeting my needs. That's how people view church sometimes. That's how people view ministry sometimes. Nobody's serving me. You know what, folks? I believe churches ought to minister to people, don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe your church should meet your needs. I believe pastors ought to show mercy to people. But I'm saying that's a terrible spirit for us to have. The Bible says here we ought to love mercy. Can I ask you, is it any good to be faithful at church if you don't love the people that are at your church? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us this. If I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. In other words, you are incredibly eloquent and everybody hangs on every word that you speak. And I have not love, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. If I give all of my goods to feed the poor and I do not have love, the Bible says, listen to this, it is nothing. So if we are doing our service to God or our service to others and there's really no heart of love and there's really no heart of mercy, we're not really accomplishing anything great for God. It's nothing. It's nothing. We need to have a spirit of mercy. Somebody has a need. Somebody has the ability to meet the need. Somebody sacrifices to meet the need. And I just want to encourage you young people in this self-generation, get your eyes off of yourself and start loving other people. You know, God has given to you and created and, and commanded us a specific place where we ought to be showing love to other people. And you know where it is? It's in the local church. This is why you ought to be a member of a local church. This is why you ought to be faithful at your local church. This is why you ought to be going and uh, serving at a local church because it's in the local church setting where we as Bible-believing Christians ought to be loving one another. And yet so many churches, there's a lot of fighting and not, not a whole lot of love. It's really sad, isn't it? We need to show mercy. Maybe you're thinking, well, I don't know anybody that has any needs. Can I just tell you, you need to open your eyes. Open your eyes. Maybe if you would open your eyes and start listening a little bit, you would notice that maybe somebody that's even sitting real near you right now, somebody that might be even staying in the same cabin with you, is going through a very difficult situation. Have you noticed that sometimes we are so quick to tell everybody what's going on in our lives and we're not quick to listen to what other people are going through? We want to be a lecturer and not a listener. And if we would start communicating with people and actually sincerely asking about their lives, we would find out that there are, there are lots of people around us that are hurting There are people that have broken hearts. There are people that are suffering. There are people that have needs. And we need to be ministering to those needs. We may have the ability to help them, to pray with them, to encourage them, to maybe even give financially to encourage and help them, to maybe uh, be their friend. But we are so selfish sometimes. We expect everybody to serve us. We expect everybody to be merciful to us. But we don't care to show mercy to anyone. And yet the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 10... That Jesus said, whosoever will be great among you must be a servant, servant of all. Let me just tell you who's the greatest person in this room, and it is not the person who scores the most points on the basketball court. That is not the greatest person in this room. The greatest person in this room is not the person that everybody thinks is good looking, or they're the class clown and everybody loves to be around them. Most popular. That is not the greatest person in this room. According to Jesus Christ, the greatest person in this room is the person who shows the most mercy, the person who serves other people. And you know what a servant does? A servant does whatever is necessary to make someone else successful. Listen to what the Bible says. We ought to weep with those that weep. Can I ask you, do you know anybody that's weeping? Do you know anybody that is hurting? You ought to weep with them. We ought to rejoice with those that rejoice. Do you know anybody that has wonderful things happening in their life, but we are so carnal and selfish sometimes, when somebody's going through a trouble and a trial, we think this. Well, it's about time somebody else has some trouble besides me. When somebody has a really big blessing in their life, we, we think something so sinful like this. Well, why can't something like that happen to me every once in a while? That's how selfish we are. You know, we're living in the social media generation. Have you noticed this? I'm very concerned that there are some of you, and you are talking and spending so much time with people you never see, and you can't spend any time talking to people you see every day. This is a problem. That we can communicate by text or typing, and we can do all this social media with people that really we don't have long-lasting Uh, relationships with we don't really see them they're they're across miles they're across countries they're all around the world maybe friends like that and and we don't mind talking and communicating with them but we can't look somebody in the eye and pray with them and encourage them and communicate with them that's a serious problem we need to have a heart of love for people why are we spending so much time communicating with people we don't hardly see and we're not communicating with people we see all the time Can I encourage you, develop a heart of love and mercy, of some having compassion, making a difference. Let me tell you who's going to make a difference in the future. Those of you young people who say, you know what, I'm not going to live for myself, I'm going to live for Jesus, and I'm going to love people. I'm going to love people. I'm going to love the lost, I'm going to love Christians, I'm going to do what I can to make other people successful in God's eyes. This is the heart of the Christian faith, that God loved the world. And because God loved the world and he loved us, we also, as his followers, must show love to others. This is what the Bible says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciple. That you have love, one for another. Love, mercy. You know, I'm convinced that there are lots and lots of people who attend church every week, And they wear their nice clothes and they sing all the hymns of the faith, but they walk in and out of the auditorium and they never care to help anyone except themselves. And I'm just saying that's a lot of religion and that's a lot of ritual, but that's not what God requires. God requires love, love of mercy. Be holy, and maybe I could say this way number two, be helping. Be helping. Can I ask you a question? Is there anybody that you're helping right now? You know, for some of you older classmen, juniors and seniors, why not gather up some young, younger classmen in your, in your youth group, a junior, higher, seventh, eighth grader, take them under your wing, pray with them, encourage them, ask them what they're reading in their Bibles, encourage them maybe in some of the talents that you have, ask them how school's going, uh, pour yourself into somebody else. I'll tell you, this is the greatest way to live. It's true joy. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And when he did, he said, happy are you if you do this to others. Think of it. The king of glory washing the disciples' feet and then commanding them to go out and be a servant and wash other people's feet. I'll tell you, there's a lot of servants that have provided a wonderful opportunity for you to be at Southland Christian Camp this week. And I'm so thankful that they're willing to serve. They're willing to serve behind the shadows. They're they're showing mercy. They're showing Uh, Kindness, and most of them will never be recognized. And and that's that's the joy that we have as ministers of the word of God and ministers of the gospel. We serve for the sake of his name and we serve so that others can be successful. Love, mercy. I'm gonna tell you something. If you will learn to be a servant when you're a teenager, it'll get in your system and it'll never get out. You know, sometimes what's really hard, you serve people and some of the very people you serve actually hurt you They spite you. They turn on you. It's really hurtful. Paul said it this way. The more abundantly I love, the less I'm loved. But listen, God's love never changes for us. We should never stop loving people. We should never stop serving. This is what God requires. This is real Christianity, real Christian service. Be holy and be helping. If these things are not happening in your life, It doesn't matter how many times you attend church. You're not right with God. It's not about religion and ritual. It's about a relationship. It's a relationship that is cultivated through obedience. Look at the last one. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require thee, but to do justly, that's to be holy, love mercy, be helping other people, get your eyes off yourself, love showing the kind of mercy you've received to other people, and then he says this. Walk humbly with your God. So he uses the word walk because walking is a description of a pattern of our life. It's the idea of walking. This should be a regular pattern of our life. This is what people should recognize in our lives. And what should they recognize? This this wonderful value, this, this truth, this character quality of humility. Now, humility is something that is very difficult for somebody to to really preach about because I don't want to get up here and say, you need to follow what I say about humility because I've become humble and I want you to know about it. I I would not do that. That's not humble, right? I've attained humility, and so I'm going to tell you how to get humility. That would not be a very humble thing to say. That would be very proud to say. And so I want to tell you that this is something I'm working at as well as you. But the Bible does say this. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up and exalt you in due time. And so, I've learned in my life, if if you've not learned this, you will, that if you don't humble yourself, God knows how to do it. And He can bring you low. But we need to walk humbly with God. Can I just quickly share with you three characteristics of a humble person? Three characteristics of a humble person. A humble person, number one, will be someone who has a desperate pursuit of God. A humble person is someone who has a desperate pursuit of God. You see, when you are truly humble, you are a person who recognizes the greatness of God and the distance that is between God and you. And so because of his character and because of his greatness and because of his majesty, you recognize how great God is and how frail and weak you are. And so in order to get that view of yourself, in order to get a proper view of yourself, you have to have a proper view of God. And and so the scripture tells us over and over, we ought to know the Lord. Psalm 63 says, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And the people that see God, the people who know God, will be strong and do exploits. Daniel 11 verse 32 says, We have a great example of this in Isaiah chapter 6 when we see the prophet Isaiah seeing a vision of God and the angels calling back and forth across the throne room. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Now listen, when Isaiah saw the character of God demonstrated in that vision, what did he do? He fell on his face and he said, woe is me. For mine eyes have seen the king. Can I tell you that genuine humility is always cultivated by the knowledge of God. And maybe the reason why some of you are so cocky and arrogant and proud is because you are not viewing God very much. When you view God, you will not be proud. Because when you see God's holiness, you'll realize you're not holy at all, right? When you see God's love and kindness to you, you, you'll realize you've got a long way to go. When you see His righteousness and His his justice and His power and and His love and and His grace, when you see all these things about God, it, it makes you realize how frail you are. True humility is always demonstrated by a passionate pursuit of God. And if you're not reading your Bible and you're not spending time with God and you're not getting to know His character then you are demonstrating pride and arrogancy. Pride is the ultimate sin. In Isaiah chapter 14, it's the sin that caused Lucifer to be cast out of heaven. He said, I will exalt myself against God. I will be like the Most High. And pride is the ultimate sin and probably the root of every sin that we commit. So we need to humble ourselves before God, recognizing that a passionate, passionate, Desperate pursuit of God is a demonstration. God, I need you. And you know what? We do, don't we? When was the last time you woke up in the morning? And the first thing you thought to yourself was, Lord, today I can't do this without you. I need you. This is this is the kind of spirit of a humble walk, a desperate pursuit of God. Number two, this is the second characteristic of a humble person. Number two, if you are a humble person, you will have a dedicated passion for God. It's a big concern that I have for young people today. There's a lot of young people that are very, very passive Christians, and uh, we really treat our Christian life like it's really not that exciting, there's no energy, there's no zeal, there's no fervency in our experience as a Christian. I think if you are a truly humble person and you recognize how great and grand God is, how can that... Not energize a life of dedication, a life of passion for God. Don't be passive, be passionate. Don't be passive, be passionate. The Apostle Paul, the Bible tells us, he served the Lord with all humility. Now don't get me wrong, being humble is not just not being quiet, not talking, kind of sheepish, sheepish, you know, backing away from people. That's not true humility, that's false Humility. We're not talking about backing away from what you know to be true. We're talking about being bold and courageous with the power of God on your life because you already have seen God. You know who God is and giving your life as a dedication to Him, being passionate for the Lord. And I hope that, that you would demonstrate that kind of humility in the world. Number one, we all have a desperate pursuit of God. Number two, a dedicated passion for God. And finally, the third characteristic of a humble person is number three, you will have a decisive praise to God, And I want you to turn to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Quickly turn there, as we continue to talk about this idea of humility. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You see, as you see the greatness of God and the grandeur of God, and you realize that He actually wants to use your life. This is an amazing thing. It is truly amazing that God would want to use us. And then God chooses to use our life. That we are very foolish to steal the glory to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And so in that very moment, we decisively choose to give God the praise, to give God the glory. This is what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look what he says in verse 24, or excuse me, verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Isn't that wonderful to know that God's not just looking for all the rich, noble, lofty people. It's a good thing, right? You know what this means? God can use us. It's a wonderful blessing. But God hath chosen, verse 27 says, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen Boy, I am so glad that God is choosing foolish, weak, sinful, base vessels. Because that's who we are. And God actually is intentionally using and choosing to use our lives. Why? Look what he says. Verse 29. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Boy, how dangerous it would be for us to snatch the glory that belongs to God. But rather... When we, when we see God doing something through our life, we already know it's God, not us, right? We already know that we're just giving our lives as a living sacrifice, and if anything good happens, it's God doing it. And so how, how, how easy it would be for us to take that and get a big head and get arrogant and proud about it, but rather we should deflect the praise and, and to sincerely say from our heart, praise God that he can use me. You know, as an evangelist, it's a privilege to travel across the country. And you know what? I, I typically spend one week, and sometimes less than one week, at a church. And uh, so one of the great things about being an evangelist is everybody kind of loves you. Because you're only there for a few days. They don't even have time to see all of your, your flaws and failures and problems. Trust me. We have them. And you know what? We, we kind of, as we say as evangelists, we blow in, we blow up, and we blow out. That's what evangelists do. And uh, most often, because of the fact that we're a special group coming in, and a special guest speaker coming in, people are patting us on the back all the time. Whoa, great ministry. Wow, great family. Wow, tremendous messages. Wow, this is awesome. And you know what? When they say those kinds of things to me, I sincerely mean this. Down in my heart, I'm thinking to myself, whoa, if they only knew we're really not great, We're really not awesome. We really do struggle. And we have sin problems, and we have struggles just like everyone else does. Can I hear an amen on that? And sincerely, from my heart, I try to give God the glory because I know how weak I am. You know how weak you are, right? I know how frail I am. And how dangerous it would be to allow those compliments or allow those things that are said to me about ministry and about the things that God is doing for me to take those things and to think high of myself and, wow, God really does need me, doesn't he? No, he does not. God chooses to use me. And if he does, I want to give him all the glory. I want to give him all the praise. For what he is doing in my life. Because I know I'm a weak, foolish, base, sinful vessel that God is simply flowing through. That's what preaching is, right? It's God using flawed people to teach flawed people. But praise God, we have the truth of the Bible, which is inspired. We can tell the truth of the word of God to you. And so, this is the idea. I see God for who he is. I have a desperate pursuit of God. And because I see God for who he is, I am a firm believer that he is great and grand and majestic and powerful Why would I not give my life to him? Here's my life, Lord, and I'm not going to be passive. I'm going to be passionate about it. And God, if you ever choose to use me, it's only for you. It's for your glory. That's walking in humility. For God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. And I'm going to tell you right now, you better crucify your pride. And you better humble yourself And realize it's God who has given you your talents. It's God who has given you you the abilities that you have. It's God who's going to bless your life. And without God doing something great in your life, our lives would not be profitable. Our lives would never impact other people. So we need to give all the praise and glory to God and walk humbly before the Lord. You know, if the truth were known, there's probably some young people in this room and you're pretty arrogant. You think pretty highly of yourself. Frankly, you might even think, wow, I'm, I'm pretty cool. I'm awesome. How foolish. Better watch out. This is the kind of pride that God says will bring you low. You need to walk humbly with the Lord. And one of the greatest ways to walk humbly with the Lord is to be obedient to His Word, and even obedient to what you've, you've heard tonight. This is God's requirement. That we would not be just religious, ritualistic people, but we would be cultivating a right relationship with God through obedience to these three principles. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. I'm so thankful growing up in a Christian home that this is one of those verses that I heard over and over and over again. My dad was a pastor. How many other pastor's kids out there? Okay. It's a privilege to be a pastor's kid grew up in a pastor's home, I was fully aware of the trials and troubles of ministry, the joys of ministry as well. I remember when I went to Bible college and I was I was a call back home and I would start uh, complaining to my dad about all the troubles and trials that I had at college and then my dad would talk for one minute I would think, I better just stop talking because his troubles are way more than mine. I would maybe hear him crying on the other end, I was crying on this end, we're struggling, we're, we're wondering how we can make it and I remember often at the end of those conversations, my dad would say this, you know what, Mark, you can't really solve other people's problems. You can't uh, deal with all those situations perfectly all the time, and neither can I. And he would say this, he'd say, son, you know what? You know what you need? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. And young people, if I can do that, and you can do that, you're obeying God's requirements. In essence, that is all that God wants from us. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Can I ask you, is that the way you're living right now? I'm not asking you if you're religious. I'm not asking you if you're doing good things externally. I'm asking you, are you holy? Are you helping other people? Are you humble? That's what God requires. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I THINK.